And so I feel like the worst part of any sell-off is always the last part. That's where they take everybody apart. They take the generals and they take the sergeants. And so um, I think that's what you have in front of you here. And, and everybody's piled into these same equities. So uh, that's where the damage will probably come as well. But I think the worst part will be uh, ahead of us here over this next one or two quarters. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. Here at the end of 2023, confidence in the economy and the financial markets is a lot higher than it was at this time a year ago. Is that confidence justified? Or will 2024 deliver a rude awakening? To find out, we turn to the experience and wisdom of financial advisor Ted Oakley, managing partner and founder of Oxbow Advisors. Ted has over 40 years experience helping clients, mostly high net worth families, protect and build wealth through good times and bad. We'll find out how he's currently positioning his clients' assets for the coming year. Ted, it's wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us today. You bet, Adam. Uh, glad, to, glad to be here. Always like to see how you're doing. I think you've been doing great on, the, on everything. Well, thanks. And, um, you know, we, we, we're doing this on the new Thoughtful Money channel. Um, we are officially just starting uh, the second week of it here, Ted. So I'm so pleased and, and honored that you're one of the early guests uh, getting this channel kicked off. Um, there has been a great uh, lineup of August guests, but you are right there at the top of the roster. So thank you for making the time in your day to uh, to be part of our initial launch here. Um, lots of questions for you. Um, I'll try to be respectful of your time, but I'm probably going to try to pack two interviews worth of questions into one if I can get away with it. But if we can, let's start off at the general question I like to ask you every time we uh, we sit down together. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, it's still basically what we've espoused all year, Adam, in that I think I think the thing that people can't grasp is there was so much money went into the system in 2021. It had to stream that out for a while. Normally, you would have been in a recession by now. But that really extended all of that. Now, I think the harder part, I, I thought by the fourth quarter, we would be feeling it, which we're starting to feel it. And then uh, it looks like the first and second quarter, you will really feel it because we just see so many things that are declining. And this idea that the consumer is great, we don't agree with. And if you just look at the whole thing, um, it's interesting to us because it's almost like we feel like people are not reading anything. They're just watching what's happening on TV and they just go with that. But it's it's um, it's it's still by by the month, we feel like it gets a little bit worse all the time. All right. So, um, you know, what I hear you saying, Ted, uh, we've talked about the pig and the python metaphor of all that stimulus that was shoved into the system uh, in response to the pandemic. Just sounds like that that pig was way bigger than anybody expected. And it's just taking a lot longer to, to exit the Python. And of course, human nature being what it is, the longer something, you know, the longer a risk people have been told about um, does not manifest, they just increasingly start thinking, well, maybe it's never gonna manifest. And they just start kind of going on about their lives. Is that kind of where we are? Well, that is, I think people forget, Adam, that five trillion was a stimulus from the government portion of it. Now, if you take that five trillion, 1.8 trillion, went to individuals. So that was free money for everybody, businesses, people, stay-at-home mom, any, anybody. And then the second part is, unfortunately, the Federal Reserve since 09, you know, kept the rates so low 
that they really pushed this, uh, what I call speculative activity to an all-time, all-time high. And when that happened, that was housing, that was everything you can think of. And so all of that, you had to push through all of that. So it was bigger and longer than what people expected. Okay. Um, I'd like to get your opinion on this. We'll talk more about this in detail later on, but um, I just uh, recently uh, released a video with David Rosenberg, and he talked about not only just the size of the pig, but that um, now that the pig is exiting the Python, um, rather than immediately constrain spending, consumers have dropped their savings rate very substantially uh, relative to historic norms. Um, and at the same time, commensurately, they have increased the debt financing of their lifestyle, right? That we've seen the credit card balances, you know, rocket higher. Um, and he said that that has actually sort of acted as a sort of stimulus too here. Now, obviously that's transitory, that, that can't happen forever, right? You can, savings rate can only go down so low and you can only charge so much on your card before your, your lender cuts you off. Um, do you agree with that point of view? Oh, 100%. I think David is right on the money on that. And then, and then another thing I see this in the banking side is that it's hard to believe this, but people are going in and getting home equity loans. And I'm talking about it 8 to 9% now uh, and pulling down cash out of those home equity loans because they've got a lot, you know, most cases they have a lot of equity in the house. And so they're doing the home, that, that part of it's going up too, which is crazy in itself, but it's all leverage. And that's, that's, he's, he's correct about that. All right. And is that, you know, we used to see um, home equity withdrawals um, as a sign of a, of a frothy economy, right? Where people were just feeling good and they didn't feel bad about taking on the additional uh, debt. And of course that debt was really cheap, you know, back in the last part of the cycle when they were taking it out. Um it, this time, is it sort of a sign of, of maybe desperation where they don't have any other alternatives but to tap the now quite expensive uh, equity in their house? That's true, Adam. And what happens is, you know, people have to be in position where if you own any kind of real estate at all after two, two, you know, 2020, then all of a sudden you got this two or three year huge bump in it. And, and so you can't sell it or nobody will buy it. So people are like, you know, that's one area I have, I know we've got money in, so I'm just going to pull some of it out of it because we need it. And, you know, I, I, I've just seen that all over the place. Okay. Um, I do want to get into kind of your thoughts on the housing market later on here too, but, but let's, let's go back up to the top here. Uh, so you gave us your, your general view of the, the markets. Um, I guess maybe one quick question for you. Um, not that long ago. So, so I've interviewed a number of people recently who I think share your pessimism for next year. Um, David Rosenberg, like I mentioned, um, Fred Hickey uh, feels the same way. He actually believes that that part of it's going to be driven by the Magnificent Seven, which have powered the markets higher, finally stumbling here. Um, but, but highly respected uh, technical analyst, uh, Tom McClellan, uh, he basically put 2024 as the years the wheels come off. I mean, he's really pretty bearish about this. Are you expecting uh, 2024 to be a more painful year for the markets and for investors than 2023 has been? You know, Adam, uh, I felt all along that this this bear market, I call, still call it a bear market that started in January of 22, 
would be much like 2003 because we had such an uh, such a huge buildup of speculative activity for 95 to 2000. So it took three years actually till March of 03 to turn it finally. I felt like we would do the same. We'll be basically two years into it, you know, come January 24. And so I feel like the worst part of any sell-off is always the last part. That's where they take everybody apart. They take the generals and they take the sergeants. And so um, I think that's what you have in front of you here. And, and everybody's piled into these same equities. So uh, that's where the damage will probably come as well. But I think the worst part will be uh, ahead of us here over this next one or two quarters. Okay. And so it sounds like you're saying, yes, you think 2024 is going to be a more painful market for investors, but it sounds like you're, you're kind of front-ending the pain. You're kind of looking at the first half of the year is where maybe the carnage gets real visible. Yeah. Well, you know, we were wrong. We thought we would be weakening quite a bit by the fourth quarter. Uh, and, and I think what's happened, much like what we've been talking about, you've been able to extend a lot of things with money and that sort of thing. And so people were able to push through that uh, I don't think the numbers will be that good for the fourth quarter in terms of GDP. But then I think when you get into the first and second quarter, that's where you'll have the trouble. And I think that's where people will finally realize, hey, uh, this thing's not too great right now. And I, I, they just you haven't gotten a point yet where people said, I want out of the market. Uh, there's been no what well, we've seen, no true capitulation. Uh, well, absolutely. And you and I have talked in, in past interviews about what capitulation looks like. And, and actually, I'll ask you to remind folks of that in a bit. But not only have we not seen capitulation, but I would say we've seen more, um, at least in parts of the market, the parts that have driven the, the indices, um, you know, maybe not a euphoria. I mean, I guess you could maybe say that in the AI space earlier this year. But we've definitely seen, um, you know, a lot of optimism come back in. Um, I've talked with you know, again, a number of analysts on this program relatively recently, um, Darius Dale being one of the ones that comes to mind, who who shows, you know, history shows that basically stocks perform really well right up into a recession. And in Darius's analysis, he says the party gets, you know, kind of at its most crazy right before the cops show up. And uh, I'm giving this as context because I want to put this chart up here. Uh, and this is a chart from uh, your um, chief investment officer's Chance Finucane's recent update. And he shares here that the Magnificent Seven stocks, I mean, it, it's they've done phenomenally well this year, right? Up on average 80%, 81% or so. In fact, I think this chart was was created before the recent pop we've had post-October uh, CPI. So they might be up even a little bit more. Um, and you can see here, they've they've dragged the S&P up. Um, and if you, if you basically look at the S&P on an equal weight basis, well, gosh, it's negative for the year. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... It's probably closer to 100% now, you know, with this last uh, little fling we had here in the last few weeks. And, uh, you know, that's, it reminds me of July of this year, same thing. You know, they ran, ran them up into July and everybody was uh, really getting in the speculative mood again. And so we're back to that. All right. So, um, you know, again, it feels going back to Darius's point, you know, the party's Party's going on strong. At least it's going on strong, you know, in tech, right? And that's what matters right now in terms of, you know, propping the markets up and everything. So to your point, you know, the Magnificent Seven, I, I guess you would call them generals, right? So as you said earlier, you know, in a capitulation phase, the generals get shot along with the infantrymen, right? So um, are you expecting those guys to to truly stumble next year? 
Well, I do, because it was the same thing for us back in 99 and going into the first quarter of 2000, all of those primary stocks that, and I wrote a piece in January of 2000 said these 15 companies are really overvalued. And I would say, I went back and looked at that around 2011 or 12 and all but one of them had never gotten back where they were. And we really feel like it's sort of the same way now, you know, when you're in, when you get in these bubbles like this and everybody's jammed into the same thing, you know, that's going to be a problem eventually because you can't have everybody all of a sudden say, Oh, the Holy grail are, are these seven stocks and you buy those and forget it. And that usually is setting you up for some disaster down there somewhere, you know, I don't know where, but it's somewhere. All right. Well, there are two charts I want to show that that hammer that home. One here, again, a chart from uh, Chance's presentation, which is probably now at a high, even higher PE ratio than this. But this shows you how much of an outlier the Magnificent Seven are versus the the rest of the market, uh, and just implied fair value for the market. Um, I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> right. Well, it is, and if you look, I have a I don't have a chart in front of you, but I have it that shows that if you take just tech, which is really this group drives the tech averages, is the highest percentage relative to the S&P 500 that it has ever been in the history of keeping the numbers. Uh, and I think that's where people uh, are, are a bit confused. It was the internet back in the late 90s. If you had anything to do with the internet, if you put .com on the back of your company, you were going to get a lot of lot of valuation, and that's where we are today with with this group. Okay, um, I'm going to pull up a uh, a chart here that uh, again you guys have done that that speaks directly to that, um, which is you basically said that hey the 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 leaders, you know the, the the magnificent leaders of each decade tend not to be the magnificent leaders in the following eras. Um, and I believe you said, uh, or Chance said that, that we're about 15 years into this tech, um, you know, cycle here, meaning that it's quite long in the tooth. And you can see here, looking at each one of these sort of prior decades, you know, the, 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 the big assets that were driving valuation were not the ones that continued into the following decades. So, um, you know, I, I guess you're saying, look, history is highly likely to repeat itself here. Well, I'll just give you some examples. If you looked at, you know, if you look at 1989, 1988, 89, we would almost get thrown out of people's offices because we didn't own Japan, but Japan, they were really expensive. The Japanese stocks were very high multiples and we just didn't own it. We said, you know, it's not, not for us. Uh, and so that's, you know, in fact, that, that looked like the next 30 years and it did do this, that wasn't ever going to make it. It didn't. And then, and then we had, you know, he came back in the nineties, like the NASDAQ, you know, especially 95 to 2000. And that was that same sort of thing. And, um, and I've done a lot of studies on looking at these, these um, periods when you go through, you'll have 20 year periods, 15, 20 year periods for finance. And then you'll have normal cycles. You'll have maybe 12, 15 year periods of uh, commodities and that sort of thing. Well, commodities haven't played in so long that people have totally forgotten about them. So, you know, there's a lot of things could change in this decade. And I felt all, all along that this decade would be a lot like the 70s. You would do up and down, up and down, really not get anywhere because we were so overpriced. 
Okay. And obviously when you say this decade, you're talking about the 2020s, right? I am 20, you know, basically 2020 to 2030. All right. Um, there's a one or two other charts I want to pull up here real quickly. Um, and one is, um, it's another chart from uh, David Rosenberg. I've got one or two others from him too. And I don't mean to turn this into a David Rosenberg fest, but but everything you keep saying is reminding me of these discussions I just had with him. Well, um, I, I have to tell you, I'll plug David too. I, I take his research uh, on an institutional basis and uh, David's very good. I was going to say, it is good company to be to be included within. Um, here's a simple chart, but I think an effective one. Again, this goes back to sort of the the, the repeating of history, which is, if you look at all the major recessions that we've had in the past 30 plus years, um, they have followed a rate hiking regime where we then plateaued for a while, right? Where they, they stopped hiking rates. Um, and then in general, it's right when they start cutting the rates is when the recession arrives, right? And you know, as you can see from here, TBD, whether um, we're at the peak now, we're at the plateau, um, but it's it's been uh, four months, I think, since the last rate hike. And um, David Rosenberg is saying, you know, history shows that once you have five consecutive uh, months of no rate hikes, he said, that's when the rate hiking cycle is over, right? So he believes that we're pretty much there. So if history is to repeat itself, you know, then there should be a recessionary, you know, shading to this chart in, in the coming year. Well, you know, it's interesting about this chart, too, and I've told people this, and they didn't really believe me, but I said back in 07 and 08, what broke the market was the 5% level, you know, on, on the rate, and and we're the, exactly the same place today, except we have a ton more, ton more debt <laughs> yeah, in the system. And if you look back at the left side of that graph, 1987, what broke the market was a situation where Greenspan moved the rates such that you could get a 10% yield, uh, you know, on five to 10 year paper. It didn't last long, stayed about a week, seven or eight days. And people basically said, hey, uh, if I can get that kind of money, I'm out of here. And so it rolled over and it killed the market. And and I think that's what a little of what you're seeing today. People are saying, hey, you know, I can get five, five and a half by not doing a lot right now. So that that changes the system quite a bit. Okay. Um, well, there's one last chart of David's that I want to show while I'm I'm on a Rosenberg roll here, if you will. Um, and this, again, was included in um, Chance's presentation there. Um, he's got a you know relatively simple, but I think compelling um, equity momentum model. And uh, its current reading is god awful. <laughs> so I think he, he says that... Uh, Anything above six indicates positive momentum. Between four and six is neutral, and uh, less than four is negative momentum. And we're coming in at a one point two. Yeah, and this was uh, this was, you know, what's happened with the S and P. If you look at these things here that that you're showing, um, they they keep flirting with really breaking through a lot of this stuff. I mean, I think if I had to guess. I think that 4,400 level is probably going to trigger a lot of stuff. Uh, just to guess, because that's where a lot of these technicians sort of plug in their number. But if you look, um, if you look at the forward earnings, particularly forward guidance, forget about you know on the earnings themselves, they play this game you know on Wall Street where they'll make sure they beat the number because they lower the number. Right. But on the guidance is where you really see it. 
are they guiding down? Yes. You know, you're starting to see that. Are triple C defaults going higher? Yes. Quite a bit, by the way, as far as that goes. And so if you look at all of those things to get put them together, that's that's what we see. And so I, I think you, you have to factor that in. And probably the worst of, I would say, the problems are probably in private credit. And you can't even, like if you look at mezzanine financing rates out there right now, they're high. I mean, you're talking about 14 or 15 points in many cases. And that's that's tough. <laughs> well, and you know, in the private debt market, Ted, um, like I'm assuming we don't have as the same visibility into that market that we have into the public debt markets. So how do we know when there's trouble there? Is it basically when rates go high and then all of a sudden we just see a lot of bankruptcies and defaults? Like, like do yeah. we get much warning before the carnage starts really happening? Well, probably, probably not. And what will happen when it happens is you'll show up and it'll be like what we're seeing some of the commercial real estate now. They, they go, they'll go back and say, okay, here's the problem we have uh, back to investors and say, if we want to, if we want to keep this company, if we want to keep it, we're going to have to have a cash call. And if you don't want to do the cash call, you probably don't participate. But I think when you start seeing that kind of thing, which we're seeing in commercial real estate right now, yeah. then you, you, then you know, you're in trouble. And I think that's, what's going to happen in private equity. You'll, you're going to have, you have way too many, uh, I hate to say this, but you have way too many 30-year-olds in private equity firms that probably don't have a clue to what really, really bad times look like. Well, they don't probably because they haven't lived through them, right? No, they haven't. That's one of the problems with the industry today, our industry. We, we have very, very few people. Uh, if you've been around an industry 30 years or longer, you've never even seen rates go higher. Well, you know, again, I was talking about this with David Rosenberg. Um, he was basically saying what I've observed, which is sort of like the older and more experienced uh, the analyst, the more pessimistic they are about about the, the the near term future. And he's basically making that observation that it's the guys with all the experience who have seen you know these cycles before and know what happens and know what to, they look like and know what to look for. They're very worried where, you know, the younger people in the industry who don't have that kind of background are, you know, sort of saying, okay, boomer, whatever, but we think it's different this time. Well, and, and just take a point in case, take Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway. He he now has, he's sold, he's sold things during the quarter. He's up to $157 billion in cash on the books. And about 78 or 80% of the portfolios in five or six companies, that's it. And, you know, that tells me that they don't have anything to buy or they would have already bought it, you know. Right. And people need to watch those sorts of things because that's, those are the kinds of people that come in that you, you, if you remember, you saw Buffett at the end of 08, early 09, you know, throwing out these $10 billion investments and, you know, that's how they make a lot of money. But right now they have a lot of cash. And so, um, you know, word to the wise, what's what these people do that have been really good at it. Yeah. And I, I think one thing about Buffett that's important to note is he's got a lot of incentive to buy something that he's maybe not a hundred percent, you know, convinced of because he doesn't have a lot of time left. <laughs> you know, like yeah. if he wants to do something remaining in his life, he doesn't have a lot of time to do it. So the fact that he's still sitting on his hands, given that pressure really tells you that he's not finding a lot of good prospects out there. 
Well, it's like my uh, my wife's dad has just turned 90 and he bought a brand new big uh, Ford pickup. And I always think, I told her, I said, he's optimistic. What can I tell you? That's great. And I, I think Buffett's the same way. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, look, um, just to, I just got to ask this question because you you mentioned Buffett and only owning a couple of companies. One of the companies he does own a lot of is Apple. Yeah. And Apple is one of these generals that we just talked about, you know, may get taken out to the woodshed next year. Um, Fred Hickey, who is famous for his newsletter that he's been writing since the 80s, the high tech strategist, is very pessimistic on the Magnificent Seven right now, but particularly pessimistic on Apple and Tesla. But on Apple, and Apple has had what four or five consecutive quarters of revenue contraction. Yeah. Um, what I mean, I, part of me has a hard time sort of squaring that circle. You know that that Buffett would be holding onto a company that can't can't grow revenues. Well, I think I think he's probably been influenced by a couple of the lieutenants. If I had to guess, now, okay, uh, I don't know the man, and certainly have a lot of respect for him, but. Uh, perhaps that's the way it's been. Here's the thing. When you get a company this big, three trillion, it's really hard to move the needle. Yeah. I mean, what, do you, what, do you, what are you going to do and introduce another iPhone? Not that everybody else already has an iPhone. And, and one of the things since uh, Steve Jobs is not there is they don't have, you know, they don't bring these really innovative major changes out anymore. And so, um, Again, I look at it like Sony in 1996, $155 a share by the 99. And there was nothing that anybody had that wasn't Sony. And I had people all over the country tell me there'll never be another Sony. And that was like so many things, not true. <laughs> so uh, we'll get in near the end here, sort of how you're positioning and really positioning more for the nearer term, right? How to, how to get through 2024. But I'm curious because we brought it up here. Um, is there an, a sector that you're beginning to sense might be the next big mega trend for the 2030s or whatever? You know, if, 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 if once tech's dominance does slip, is it, is it becoming clear to you which sector may replace it here? Well, we're, I'm always asking this question of myself and also the people in the firm and everybody had a chance and we do the same thing, which is what, what, what are we missing? Like we try to take a contra idea to what we're thinking to say, mm -hmm. what, what would be different that nobody's really starting to see? And one of the things that could be different now, I'm not saying it's happening this second, but one of the things that could be different um, is that commodities and, and commodity-based companies do really well in the, in the next 10 or 15 years because we've basically shrunk supplies of all these things metals, oil, every, everything, the supplies of those have gone down because we, we've gone toward finance and gone toward tech. And so a lot of commodities really are in somewhat short supply. And I think that's something I'm watching. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it could happen. And of course, the next thing that will happen is we'll be on the look for really, really strong industrials. Because once you have a breakdown in the marketplace, the first thing to come out of it are the really, really good industrials. Right now mm -hmm. is not the time. And if you notice them, they're they're faltering, but but there will be a time. But um, as far as a new technology, I don't necessarily think it would be AI that everybody thinks about because AI is just like the, inter the internet was back in the late 90s. 
all everybody puts an AI at the end because they don't know anything else to do. Like mm -hmm. I've got to talk about AI to make sure I'm in the club. Okay. But the club, the real club for AI is probably very, very small. And there'll be people that make money off of it that we probably at this time don't even know what they're doing. But um, that's the kind of thing we start to look for are really changing, changing items, changing technology. And uh, I do think that'll be a big part of it. Okay. All right. Well, look, I want to, um, we talked about stocks. Um, your outlook is, is, you know, not positive, uh, looking like you're looking for the correction to at least begin, if not maybe the majority of it to happen in the first half of next year. And obviously, Ted, you're welcome to come back on this channel anytime you like, if your you know, crystal ball is changing. Let's talk about bonds for a moment. So, um, uh, I, I know, first let's talk about debt and then let's talk about bonds. Um, I know you're, you're quite worried about um, both the absolute levels of debt uh, in the American economy and in major world economies in general. Um, but I also believe from what I've heard and read from your work recently is that you know, you're quite concerned about the wave of maturing debt that corporate America has in front of it, where as long as interest rates remain in the same vicinity they are right now, we have an awful lot of debt over the next couple of years that when it re-rates, will re-rate at, at rates that are basically more than double than what the current debt on the corporate balance sheets are. Well, I mentioned this last week in a visit with someone that if you just took all of the U.S. debt, I'll take that as a starter, the average yield, uh, the average cost on is about 2.6%. However, 45, 47% of that debt comes due in 24 and 25. So you're almost going, if nothing changes, you're almost going to double the cost of that 47%. That's half the debt, let's face it. And uh, I've said all along that, you know, Janet Yellen uh, should be chastised for not taking our debt and booking it out at one and a half points when she had a chance. Right. And, you know, passed on that. But the biggest problem here is that is the rollover. And we're finding that now with real estate, everything that's rolling over that has to refinance right now is having trouble. We really see it in multifamily. And, and so that's going to happen with corporations too. Fortunately for a lot of corporations, though, they did book long debt for a little money. So that, that part of it is not quite as bad, I think, is for the government and probably private business. But, but they'll have some trouble. The biggest trouble we have, too, is that uh, you have a lot of high-yield debt, a lot of it that's not in the public market now. It's in the private market. And all of that is still yet to see the trouble. But that's, that will be trouble. All right. Um, I want to get into how you define trouble in the debt market there real quick. Um, so you said corporations smartly, right, loaded up on um, the lowest cost debt they could find when the opportunity was there. Right. And that's what's helping a lot of these sort of zombie companies still continue to to, to live, you know, even though we're we're now kind of, you know, getting two years into this this down cycle. Um, but you said we didn't do that on the government level. You said that Janet Yellen didn't take advantage of that opportunity. Was there logic behind not taking advantage of it? Or was would, would this go down as just sort of like a massive bungle? Well, I think the whole that whole thing was really, uh, unfortunately, it was probably some of the worst decisions that were have ever been made in the country, not only in the Treasury, but in the Fed. 
I mean, for them to keep rates at a quarter of a point when they didn't need to be, okay, and they all got caught up in controlling the economy to want to, I think there's an ego thing. You know, we can we can keep this thing going and which they they did with this low interest rate barrier. Nobody, it was like we had all these academics that had no idea what's going to happen or go on on the street. And uh, it was the federal government and Yellen was a big part of that. Uh, and in addition to all the Fed chairmen, including her, um, and they they just got caught up in this idea that the Fed can control the economy and it can on a short term basis, but later on. You know, it comes knocking. And I think that's what they ran into and realized that, oh, goodness, we probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel like we're going to be talking about a lot of those bad decisions for many years to come here as the repercussion, re repercussions continue to hit us. And, and I guess while we're on this topic, I should ask you my favorite about my favorite topic, which is the lag effect. And I think I know what your answer is going to be. But We've had a tremendous amount of um, policy change, right? Where the Fed took the interest rates from those ridiculous lows, you know, up to five, five and a half percent now, uh, faster than they've ever hiked before in history. And, um, you know, people are, people were worried that that was going to have an impact on the economy. They haven't really seen it that much yet, so they're beginning to discount it. This is why we get talks of soft landing, no landing, et cetera. I know you've already said that the market is, you expect that to kind of roll over first half of next year, but is the lag effect still real? Is it still going to matter? And and how much of it do you think lies ahead of us? Well, I think more than people expect. If I, I, normally at the the end of these things is where you have the worst damage. That's where you have people think that, you know what, uh, I, I heard it was coming and I thought it was, but nothing, I never saw anything, but now it's here and I wish I'd done something about it. It's sort of that idea when you get there. And this lag effect's bigger because you had more money in the system. And, and so people have been able to, to think more positively about things. You know, their home prices are up and their stocks have stayed up to a degree. And so they, you know, that's the mode they're in. And so the lag effect will catch a lot of people by surprise, I think. And I'm, unfortunately, I think a lot of people will get have some damage they don't need, especially for older people. Yeah, um, that's a whole different topic. Maybe I'll reserve some time to talk about that if we can. Um, all right. Well, look, so um, you've talked about your concerns about um, the debt and the impact of, of, of the debt. Um, but if the Fed is at this point where, where maybe we're now at that plateau, Right where it's it's perhaps stopped hiking interest rates, and maybe if you think it's going to hike a little bit more, my guess is you probably don't think it's going to hike all that much more on a relative basis. So, um, uh, you know, if we do get to a plateau, then the more likely direction after that is cutting, and you know, cutting could come because the Fed achieves its its objective, right? It gets inflation down below two percent, or cutting could come because uh, things really start to get out of hand and the Fed has to go into rescue mode. Um, two sort of combined questions for you. One is, which do you think is more likely, the Fed cutting because it achieves its mission or because uh, something breaks? And then secondly, what is your outlook for bonds going forward from here? You know, there's a, there's a school of thought, I've interviewed a number of people recently, Rosenberg again, was one of them, who thinks that this is actually a really attractive time 
uh, to be in longer bonds to ride as rates come down, you know, the seesaw relationship between rates and prices, um, that that bond prices should go up. And that effect obviously is felt more the longer you go out on the duration curve. Well, I'd have to say that, you know, somewhere the rates are, you know, rates do go down. I mean, people, the idea that they think they're not coming down, they eventually roll over. I actually, you know, I have to look at it and just tell you this. In looking at history, I never believed any of the Fed presidents before Volcker. He was the only one I ever believed. And then I've never believed any of them since that time. <laughs> so uh, whatever they tell me, I know that they can change immediately and not really think about the consequences. So I'm assuming that once you have pain of some kind, okay, which is going to be unemployment, it could be a severe market correction, anything that causes a lot of pain, they I think they will immediately switch gears and you won't even hear about 2%. You know, I got to get to the 2% level. I think when you have pain and there's a lot of pressure on the pain, you got you have an election year too, remember, um, that I think they'll, they could fold up on you really quickly. So I, don't, I have no idea what they'll do, but whatever they do, I think uh, will be something that they've, 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 they've waited too long on, which is what they do both ways. Which is the Fed's, that's the Fed's track record, right, yeah. as being a slow follower, right? I mean, the, the idea that they'll get back to 2% inflation is probably not going to work, in my opinion. And if it does work, then we probably have bigger problems than we're thinking right now. But uh, we'll see. Be, be, because of, of that deflation is taking over, we're, we're, we'd have a lot less inflation than we want because deflation is now in the driver's seat? Well, that's that's part of it. I mean, you're not inflating at all that much right now, but your Fed funds are full 2% over the inflation rate right now. Mm -hmm. Wow, because you don't see that very often. But um, I, I almost think you have to, have, you'll have, I almost think you have to have some inflation more than we've ever experienced just to get out from under the federal debt, the federal debt itself. I mean, if you don't have inflation, uh, you will get to a breaking point with the federal government. So let's talk about that for a moment. Um, a lot of people have heard that sentiment before and i agree with it which is that the government secretly wants you know a certain amount of inflation because it helps it manage the cost of the debt right um but too much inflation and things start breaking um we have a gargantuan amount of debt relative to what we just had you know as you said when we were looking at that chart like back in 08 right i mean i think the government debt has more than tripled since then um so uh, yes, you need to have um, argument, you need to have inflation to help make that debt serviceable, more serviceable. But at the same time, uh, with, a, with a highly leveraged economy, highly levered households, uh, when the cost of living starts going up due to inflation, it, you know, our, our populace, I, I think, is having a narrowing and narrowing band in which it can actually like function without people really falling into not being able to keep up. Um, so how do you sort of square that going forward? I mean, one, I guess there's a scenario where they, they perfectly glide path it and surgically engineer just enough inflation to keep the debt, you know, under control, but enough of the populace happy. 
but we're talking about guys here that we've already given many examples of are, are not skilled surgeons. So, you know, is this is this sort of a, just a recipe for some big crisis down the road? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like to me. If you looked at the end of World War II, 45 and 46, you had roughly the same amount of debt relative to GDP that we have today in the federal government, 375%. And what happened is you spent, you, you know, you spent the the better part really of, of 30 years um, more and more and more and more inflation. So by the time you you got into the six, late 60s and the 70s, you were really, in, you know, that inflation kept building, building, building. But what it was doing was it was all the debt that had been issued was shrinking that debt relative to nominal GDP. Because right. It, it, because up. we had this, this production manufacturing miracle where yeah. we were the folks that helped the rest of the world rebuild. We don't have that this time. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. So this time it may be a situation where, and I, I have no idea what it will be, but I think it may be a situation where you need to be balanced. I'll say that because uh, you need some short paper because if we do stay in this inflation era, you have to have paper that's, in our opinion, you have to have a lot of it that's less than 60 months because you, you, you have to wait it out and you can't wait out 25 and 30 year paper. I mean, most people can't, but we've had such damage in it, Adam, already. If you look, if you bought, if you had a long-term bond in January of 21, I mean, you're down 45 or 50% on it, maybe more. And that's like a stock return. And now those people that own those and those bond funds like that, they, you just think about it, they've got to make, they've got to make a hundred percent in a bond fund or a bond to get back to break even, which is going to be tough. I, I, I don't see it, but that's where we are. Okay. So um, we've, it looks very likely that 2023 will end in an unprecedented third consecutive down year for U.S. Treasuries. Given your forecast for next year, what are the odds of a fourth down year? I would say they were pretty slim in a, in a lot of ways because when you get down to this point, okay, you're you're you've you've taken you've taken a lot out of the bond market, you've taken a lot of people out. You know, they keep. It's interesting. The individuals keep buying into it all the way down, and maybe the damage goes on a little bit longer. But I I wouldn't think so because if you get market weakness and you get economic weakness, you're going to get strength in the bond market because they'll go to the treasury market, always do. So that that would be what I would be thinking, that those two would go hand in hand, that you'll have weakness on one side will give you some strength in the bond market on the other side. Um, and it's always interesting to me, I always jot down what I'm thinking for the next year, and I'm normally wrong. If I just one of my thoughts were the first of first week in January, yep. okay, I don't trade that way or invest that way. I just get to thinking, okay, what could what could happen this year? What's going to happen? And it, you know, we're all anchored in what's been going on, and that's the problem. Uh, you can't. It's hard for people to say. I don't know. I, I wonder what could change that. And we're always asking that question. But what would change it are bad times. You get into bad times, and the, the rates are not going to stay where they are. You know, people will flock to the treasury. Well, it's interesting. So you're talking about sort of a safety trade, right? Which which happens, right? In in market corrections. Um, but then earlier, you also talked about the fact that if something big enough breaks, the Fed has to enter, you know, as a white knight. 
And that's been maybe the most salient factor in the bond market, which is that the biggest buyer of treasuries over the past bunch of decades has been out of the game for the past two years. So I presume that that there's good odds of a safety trade like you're talking about, but then you have this, this additional potentially big optionality value of, hey, if the biggest buyer returns to the treasury market, that's probably going to help too. Well, if you look at it, you know, from foreign countries buying that that's been declining now for two years in a row. I mean, they're not buying they they keep on buying less and less and less right. people to say, well, we want to have a buyer. And I always want to say to them, well, don't don't discount the the federal government because you know, back in World War II, they you had to buy the bonds. <laughs> you could, you know, you, you couldn't own your gold. And so I'm I always thinking, well, what could they do? Well, I could say, well, if you have a pension plan or an IRA, you have to own 30% U.S. bonds and then problem solved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds of things they can do if, if you want to keep it tax-free, that is. If you, there's all kinds of things the Fed can do. I didn't ever put anything past them. So um, I just think that people today need to really have their head on straight to make sure they've got a pretty good balance of things so that they can get through things, uh, you know, not, not be all in on just one thing. All right, well, that's a great segue to question I've been building up to, which is, well, then how are you positioning right now for your clients? Um, what, what are the main themes from your portfolio positioning? Well, I'll take the stock side first. And, you know, people, uh, you know, they tweet out or they give us a hard time and say, well, you're not in the market. And I always want to say, well, we are in the market, you know, just because we have 55% or more liquid in a stock account or 60 doesn't mean we don't own stocks. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, see, we have uh, some of those names you mentioned, we've cut back on them, but, you know, we have, you know, Apple of, you know, 12, 14 years, you know, Microsoft 15 years ago, but we've cut back on them and, and brand new accounts that come in on the stock side. We don't buy those companies. We've cut back on those legacy positions and we buy more consumer staples. But my point is this, if, if we can get, which we have this year, if we can get two thirds of the S&P return with only uh, with, with 55 or 60% liquid, we win. That's the way I look at it anyway. Um, and, I, and I think that's where we are today. So our investors are happy with that because we have a lot of liquidity in the treasury. On the very conservative side, we only have three strategies. Um, that is a, another one that's about 65% uh, treasury, uh, short-term. Okay. And then we've got, uh, some, uh, that when I say short-term, I'm seeing less than a year. Then mm -hmm. we have a big part of that. That's one, two, three year. And we have about, um, we have about 10 or 12% that's long-term 20 to 30 year. Obviously it's down in price. Okay. But what's offset it, what's offset it is the fact that we're getting so much more money on the short end. And we, you know, we started, now seeing some really great uh, tax-free bonds that are, when you do the math on them, uh, that are out in 24, 25, 26, 27, they're, they're a better return than, than the taxable treasury side. So that's where we are on the really, really conservative piece. And then we have a group called a high income, and it's, it's been a tougher year for high income because anything that had income on the end of it got hurt this year. Yep. Uh, and you can take it down the list, preferreds, real estate investment trusts, 
The only thing that really did not in that group were um, were really the gas pipelines that we own. They 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 fared really well this year, but even in those in that high income account, we're still you know sixty percent or more in the treasury. Uh, we'll come back to a lot of those things. I mean, we 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 really got stopped out of some of the REITs that we had that we had last year uh, in during this year, and we've had. We've moved some of the preferreds around. Uh, we just think that there'll be some really, we're starting to see some really good companies that have a dividend that's really high. Now, if they can keep it, we think a lot of them can. They, those are the companies that we're going to, in that high income strategy, we'll flock to those uh, in the 24 year. Because if you can buy a good company uh, that does well on, under most circumstances, maybe they're having some trouble right now and times are soft, but they're a real good company, not a lot of, you know, not, not over indebted and they'll pay you six or 7% on the dividend. You think about it, that's a 20% tax on that and you've got a growth element to it. That's a good investment. And that's what, that's what we'll be looking for. All right. And, and I know your answer will really depend on how things develop on the ground next year, but it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you is that um, you have kept a really big liquidity buffer over the past year plus, given the current your current macro assessment, um, which is there, maybe back to your, your Buffett story, right? It, it, that, that's there to be deployed when you see better valuations ahead. Sounds like you think that there could be a pretty big event, corrective event in the markets first half of next year. So my guess is you, you, you're probably assuming that you're going to have a lower cash percentage next year because you will be deploying that liquidity if indeed prices come down to the fact to, to a place where you feel like the valuations give you the green light to start buying. Well, that's true. If you look for us, uh, it's not that we're all that bright, but we always do the best off of the bottom of the market. In other words, if we look at 09, 03, even 1988, those are times when we had a lot of liquidity and people don't realize, but we look at that as, we don't, we don't look as bad times. We look as opportunity. And that's, if you have a lot of liquidity after you go through a cycle and you get to the other side, that first two or three years off of that low where you invested, you will make, that's where you'll make a lot of money for that 10 year run. Um, and we don't do as well when things are just, everybody's really speculative because we mm -hmm. just won't play in the market like that. That's just not something we do. So we cut back and we rather be in a position of where we feel like at least we're in enough, you know, you, there's going to be things happen this next 10 years. There'll be one or two things happen that none of us will expect. Nobody will expect it. I mean, it always happens this way. You don't know what it is, but you know, there's something, you know, and if you don't have the ability to, wade through that with enough liquidity where you can take advantage of some things that happen, then, then you really, you're not stewarding the money well enough. You know, we, we yeah. really feel like you need to be able to get through those things. All right. Well, you know, they say in investing, you make your money when you buy, not when you sell, right? Because you're, really? you're buying at a good valuation that, that you're, the odds are in your favor will eventually appreciate. Um, so, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but but I think maybe what I hear you saying is, is look, you know, 
markets give you at certain times an opportunity to buy in at great valuations that you can then ride for like a decade, you know, in certain cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't give you those opportunities every year, right? Um, and I, I kind of hear you saying things are aligning where the probability of next year potentially being one of those years is maybe better than normal, right? Now, there's going to be a lot of pain and carnage we're going to have to get through before the, the buying moment occurs. But next year could be, in your estimation, one of those years where you can get some of those great buying opportunities that don't come along very often. Well, I think what will happen with people, too, is they look, you say people that index and do all those sorts of things, you know, they'll look up and they'll say, you know, the index was, it, it, all these indexers are at their highest point late December, early January of 21 and late December, of, you know, 2020 and early 21. And then it's, it lasted all the way through to the very end. So December of 21 was the highest point, you know, and that was a great year for them. And I think they thought, well, hey, we're back in the money. Well, here, the problem is uh, I think they'll look up after two and a half or three years and say, gosh, I really haven't made any money. I'm, mm -hmm. I would, we were X amount then, and we're still 15, 10, 15% below, or maybe you might be 30 or 40% below. And that's what makes people throw in the towel. They're like, I can't win. I can't win here. I, I'm three years into it, not making any money. So I'm just going to sell it, which is the worst thing to do at the wrong time. And that's usually, that's how you finish these things. The worst part comes at the end. I can tell you that. Yeah, people don't realize that, but that last 25 or 35% of a bear market is where they get everybody. Well, and you've been saying this many of the times you've been on this program, Ted, and, and all through 2022, when the markets were going down, you kept saying, I'm not seeing that type of capitulation yet, right? And 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 we, we didn't have it. And of course, the markets rebounded here in 2023. If we get to the point in which you are starting to see that type of washout, that type of capitulation, please let me know and we'll have you back on so that you can tell people, okay, I'm finally seeing this. Well, I'll tell you when we start buying, I mean, we, you know, we usually, I give you a really good story. We had a lot of cash in 08, uh, about probably 45% or something we put in the market. I'll just use the Dow. It came down to about, it was 14, seven. Uh, in October of 07, by the time we got to December, uh, November, December, it came down about 8,800. And we, well, that's a big move. Yeah. Okay? So we, what's typical of us, we put in uh, about half our cash. And then by the time we got to the last week in February of 09, it was early March, it was 6,500. No, we went down another 25%. So what do we do? Uh, things were so cheap then, we put in more money. We, I think we only had about three or 4% cash at that point after we did that. Well, that turned into, you know, if you look at both of those, okay, you can say, well, you were too early. Yeah, we were, but they were cheap. They were cheap. You know, they were cheap at 8,800. They were cheap at 7,500 and certainly cheap at 6,500. And so if you looked at those buys, you know, over the next period from, you know, all the way through, they were really good buys. And that, that's where it makes you a lot of money. All right. Well, look, Ted, um, in, in wrapping up here, um, whenever I interview you, um, we wax philosophical a little bit near the end. And in, in, in the comments, I hear that that's what people enjoy most when you're on the program is benefiting not just from your market intelligence, uh, but just sort of from your 
you know, your, your, your general life perspective as a, uh, a very successful financial advisor to a lot of clients who have made a lot of money um, over the course of their careers, both by investing it, but many of your clients were entrepreneurs, business creators, whatnot. So you've got a really close finger on the pulse of what makes people wealthy. And, and what I want to underscore about the word wealthy there is, because I know you, um, wealth to you isn't just the number of digits, you know, in your your investment portfolio. Um, it, it's a whole bunch of other things that really equate more to happiness and fulfillment, and that money doesn't always necessarily equal happiness, right? And so, a couple quick closing question for you. Um, they say money doesn't buy happiness, and it is no guarantee of such. You deal with high net worth families. What are the biggest obstacles that get in their way? You know, like my wife's a, a therapist and she has a lot of clients from Silicon Valley who are very wealthy, but also very unhappy at the same time. I imagine that you see families as well that have all the ingredients to be happy, but but aren't. Like what, what, what gets in their way? Well, a few things get in their way. Number one, uh, they think that things will make them happy and things never make you happy because if you get a lot of things you're going to want well that didn't make me happy enough so i want some more things and if i get bigger cars than somebody else or some bigger houses or bigger planes then you know that will make me happy but happiness comes from within and i have people that only have two million dollars they're the happiest people in the world uh and because they're they're happy internally and i've always said to people and and a lot of things and and i just it's I'm not in the therapy business like your wife, but I've always told people that, hey, if you're not happy, you need to think about it. And I've talked to people about this and you know, about, you know, I see married couples, for example, that are unhappy. And I always want to say to them, look, you know what? You can make more money, but you can't make more happiness. Okay. So, you know, but so if you stay in your situation, unhappy, it's not going to change. So, make the change, whatever that change might be, you know, and, and, and have, have ways of knowing what really makes you happy. And if you really want to make yourself happy, give back to the world. I think my happiest people that I do business with and have a lot of money, they give back to the world. They do so many great things for uh, underprivileged people and causes and things that really make a difference in the world. And they are the happiest people, I will tell you when you can do that. So um, folks on this channel hear me talk a lot about um, the advice that people who live over 100 give. Mm -hmm. um, if you go on YouTube and you type in centenarian, that's the word for someone who's lived over 100, you'll find a lot of videos where people are saying, hey, you, 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 you've done it, you've, you've won life, you know, what, what really matters? And they always say the same three things. They say the quality of your relationships, so people are number one and we're social creatures, right? We need to respect that. That's where we really drive the majority of our happiness. The second to what you're talking about there, Ted, is meaning, it's purpose. It's that my life made some difference, you know, in, in some way that's important to me, right? And then the third is health. And that's not a surprise because you can't get to hundred, you know, if you don't have good health. Um, so I, I hear a lot of echoes of that and what you're saying. Um, now you, you made a comment. I just want to underscore this for people. You said, you know, even people who have as little as $2 million you know, can be very happy. Now, there are a lot of people watching this channel who, who $2 million sounds like it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a very aspirational destination for them. They, they, they may not be close to that yet, but I don't think you're saying in any way at all that not having $2 million is going to make you unhappy. And for folks that haven't watched my previous interviews with you, 
you grew up and I'll let you describe it, but I, I, mean, I think you grew up under extremely uh, meager means and, and I'll let you say whatever you want to say about that. Um, uh, but yeah, I guess my question is, is, is I think everything we're talking about uh, applies to people who haven't yet crossed the million mark, right? Well, it's true. Uh, and I did grow up very, very poor, uh, not to go into a lot of detail, but it was, uh, but a lot of people do, by the way, and you can be poor and be unhappy, or you can be poor and be happy, you know, if you have love in the home and that sort of thing. And I think that makes a difference, but I think the biggest thing with people is they, they forget to be grateful for whatever they have. You know, I was always grateful for the little I had and the people that helped me in my life. I'm grateful to them. They made so much difference in my life. Um, and I'm grateful today. I mean, I'm, I, I, I have a thing I do every day. I wake up, I have a, a journal, but I, I always write at least a dozen things that I'm grateful for every day of my life. Okay? My, my wife calls that a gratitude practice, which and, she recommends uh, for a lot of her clients. Yeah, You got to remember, and I try to, you know, it's interesting. I see really, really wealthy people. And I hate to say this, but something happens that's unfortunate for one of their children. And I know why they, they never took the time to really instill, Hey, let's just, let's be happy. Let's forget about, you know, um, having and seeing and doing and making people think we're something mm -hmm. Let, let's, let's love each other and be happy together, be grateful for what we have. And I think, I think a lot of people forget that. And for particular people that come into wealth, I would hope they would be more grateful than anybody because a lot of people help you get wealth, especially if you have a company, you know, and I've seen people sell companies before and they did nothing for the people that helped them to get there. And I've always thought that was a shame. You know, they could have done something nice for them at the same time, but you have to, you have to look at this and say, what, you know, what, what makes people happy? And it's not, it's not necessarily getting a lot more money. All right. Well, that's great perspective. And uh, in terms of, uh, people uh, being grateful and uh, doing right by the people that supported them. Uh, I will definitely owe you uh, something very nice in the future for all the support that you and the team of Oxbow um, have shown me uh, in my journey to go independent here with this new channel. Um, you've just been a great mentor and supporter for that, Ted. And and I, I really want to thank you and, and to let you know that that the you know, uh, we'll, we'll pay it forward uh, as soon as this channel is, is up and running on, on, on uh, you know, full, full thrusters. Well, you know, I, I would say this, and I won't say anything else, but Adam, I'll say this about you. You have a way, uh, not everybody has this skill, but it's intuitive for you. You have a way of, number one, asking great questions. You have a number two, you have a way about you that's, you're, 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 you don't bully or anything like that. You really are open. And uh, and on top of that, and I'll say this to you because I always think about that you have a great voice, and so that that you put all those together, and um, I don't think there's any way you won't be successful on your new channel. Well, thank you. You're you're making me blush now, uh, and I should at the same time too express gratitude for all the viewers, all the people that have followed me over here to this new channel, all the kind words of support and encouragement you guys have sent. It has been truly wonderful. Well, Ted, look, thank you so much. And wrapping this up. For folks that would like to follow you and your work, where should they go? 
Well, the best place to go, Adam, is just the website, oxbowadvisors.com. You'll see everything we do there, uh, newsletters, interviews, anything that's there. This interview will be there too. So anything they want to, uh, anything they want to want to find, they'll find it there. Books, we've got a number of books they can order. Right. You get a brand new one out, right? We do. Uh, it's called, uh, you know, a balanced portfolio, stay rich with a balanced portfolio. We think that's important nowadays. And then we have a new book coming out. It's a rewrite really uh, in the first quarter next year entitled 30 million and broke. Uh, it's about all the errors that people make after they get a lot of money. All right. Um, well, look, Ted, when I edit this, I will put up the URL uh, to your website here on the screen so folks know where to go. Folks, it'll also be linked in the description below so you can get there with one click. Uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation with Ted and would like to encourage him to come back on the program as soon as uh, his crystal ball is telling him that something really important is happening, please show your support for that by hitting the like button then clicking on the red subscribe button below. So what was that little bell icon right next to it? And please do subscribe to this channel if you haven't yet. In its early days, the more subscribers we get, the more the YouTube algorithm takes us seriously and only good things happen from that. Um, if you want to stay in touch of what's uh, lying ahead for this Thoughtful Money channel, uh, as well as get my Adam's notes to all the important interviews like this one's with Ted, uh, go to my Substack at adamtaggart.substack.com. And as we wrap up here, um, I just want to let folks know that uh, if you haven't yet watched the uh, amazing debate that we had between Brent Johnson of the Dollar Milkshake Theory and Matt Pippenberg, uh, we'll put that video up right here so you can watch it next. Ted, thank you so much, my friend. It's been wonderful. You bet, Adam. All right, everyone else, thanks so much for watching.